0: And I think it'll make sense as we walk along here. I titled this morning's message, though, Choose One. And uh, that'll make, hopefully, sense as we get to the end. Kind of drag you along here this morning. First Peter chapter 1. We'll take a moment here. And uh, as we find your page, just to remind you, uh, again, as we give to the Lord, we're doing that electronically at this point. Uh, the guys aren't coming by and dropping the basket uh, in your lap as we're practicing social distancing but uh, thank you for your faithfulness and giving to the Lord Fathers we open up your word Lord we do open up our hearts afresh this morning Lord I, I think most of us uh, would say that we love fresh bread there's just something about the smell of fresh baked bread in the morning and Lord thank you that your word is is like fresh-baked bread for our soul. And thank you that it's fresh this morning and we pray, Holy Spirit, that we would feed upon it and that, Lord, it would strengthen us and nourish us and, and satisfy us, that it would satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. And again, I thank you for these that are here, those that are watching online this morning. Lord, have your way, Lord, in each of our lives, we pray for the glory of God and for our good, we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all agreed, saying, amen, amen. amen. You know, there was a, a young woman who was, she was having a, a hard time in life, and she went to her mom, and she said, Mom, you know, I just want to give up. And she says, I, I just don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to struggle anymore. And as her mom heard this, it was like a, a red flag went up. And so she took her daughter into the kitchen, and she did something that was pretty unique. She took three pots, and she filled them with water, and she put them on the stove, in pot number one, she put carrots. In pot number two, she put eggs. in pot number three, she put ground coffee. She turned up the heat, and 20 minutes later, she let the, the flames get to the water to bring them to a boil. And then she turned the flame off and let it cool down. And then she took the pots off the stove, and she put the carrots in a bowl, eggs on a plate and coffee in a cup. And she said to her daughter, "Touch those carrots." What do you notice she goes they're soft she said crack open that egg and she took the egg and she noticed that it was hard and her mom said now that coffee take a sip of the coffee and she took a sip of the coffee and she said it's actually pretty good actually very flavorful and her mom said sweetheart let me ask you this question which are you the carrot the egg or the coffee and she goes mom What do you mean? She said, well, the carrots, they went in hard and strong and they came out weak and wilted and soft. The egg went in fragile and the liquidy center but came out stiff and hard. But the coffee, the coffee is the only substance that actually changed the water that it was in with a fragrance and a taste that you just admitted to me was quite flavorful. So my question to you, honey, is which are you? The carrot, the egg, or the coffee and again all those those substances they experience the same adversity you could say they experienced the same heat for the same amount of time but they each reacted differently and so to each of us so with regard to the trials that we go through in this life does it weaken us does it strengthen us does it make it hard and again or does it release a fragrance and a flavor that's Inmistakenly, uh, an imprint uh, of Christ Jesus in our life you know as we we study you know first Peter here you know, we're going to see you know as we study his life and we study his words here that God knows what he's doing sometimes it's 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 difficult for us to confess that that God knows exactly what he's doing all the time and God tests us to refine us he does that to 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 correct us, to strengthen us, to equip us. It's never to harm us. It's not to hurt us. It's because he loves us. And the ultimate end of every trial is to prepare us for something else. It's prepare us for heaven. And uh, that's why I titled this this series, Hope in the Dark. You know, I won't read the text to you, but I'll encourage you to read it. We won't read through the whole thing um, starting off, but I'll just start, you know, we'll pick it up in verse one here in just a moment. But just to kind of give you some backstory to this, it's believed that Peter wrote uh, this epistle. It's called a general epistle where Paul's epistles were were written to the churches. They were letters to churches. This isn't written to a specific church. This is just written in general to all believers throughout all time. Um, Most believe that he wrote it in the year 64 AD, just about 30 years after Jesus had uh, gone to the cross and resurrected uh, back into heaven. Also, in AD 64, it was in July of that year, there was a great fire that broke out in Rome. Uh, The entire city was engulfed in flames and hundreds of buildings uh, uh, were burned to the ground. There was many acres of land that were destroyed as well. And thousands of inhabitants of the city, they were left homeless. Uh, It was said to believe that it was actually Nero who uh, caused the fires. And you've heard the expression that, you know, uh, Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned, and actually there was no, the fiddle hadn't been invented yet, so that's probably a, a uh, tongue-in-cheek statement, but he stood by idly, and matter of fact, it said, you know, when a fire would go out in one part of the city, you know, uh, one would start in the other, as if, you know, he was behind all this, because he had a desire to really to burn Rome, the old ancient parts of Rome, to the ground so that he could build something new uh, and majestic as, as a legacy unto himself. And again, it was during this time that, uh, you know, the people then revolted. They turned against him. Um, And again, to try to calm the people's anger towards himself, he he looked for a scapegoat, someone that he could pin uh, the fires on. And so he blamed it. Guess what? On the church, he blamed it on Christians. He said it was this strange group of people who were committed to these things, like what we'll receive, you know, communion today. They said they were cannibals. They would they would meet in homes and they would eat uh, the body of, of of others and drink their blood. You know, it was the statement of with regard to communion, where Jesus said, "If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have nothing to do with me." said that they, they, were, they were into orgies, that they would uh, meet one another and they would greet each other with a, with a kiss. You know, as Paul would mention in Romans, to greet one another with a holy kiss. They would take the truth of God's word and twist it. Isn't that what the devil does uh, in your life and in mine? And so as this went about, I mean, you think about, you know, uh, as Nero would do, it's pretty sad, you know, when you think about the outcome with regard to the Christian life. And you think about what he was doing. And it's really kind of interesting because if you, if you don't put this into perspective with regard to what he's writing here in First Peter, it really doesn't make any sense to us. I mean, here's a church that, you know, is suffering persecution, that's struggling, that is being tested and being tried. Uh, as Nero turned against the church and he, the church became a scapegoat, you know, it's said that he dipped them actually in pitch, if you recall. And when he would throw parties that he would actually tie Christians to post out in his garden. And it says that he would ride his chariot naked around while, you know, Christians burned, you know, at the stake. And these are just things that he did to try to to stop people from believing, from stopping people from placing their hope and their trust in this one called Jesus Christ. You know, he threw Christians to the lions. You know, we read stories. Uh, he, he put them in, in leather bags. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but he would take them, Christians, and put them in leather bags and then put them in water. And so when the, when the, when the leather would shrink, it would actually squeeze the believers who were in those sacks, uh, you know, to death. I mean, it was just the torture that he brought upon the church. And this is the time frame at which Peter is writing this epistle here so kind of to help you think about you know the things that the church was suffering through and you know and we ask ourselves today you know we we suffer you know there's many things that we suffer through in this life there's many trials that we go through but even is it even comparable to the things that are that are taking place and as I shared last week even in other parts of the world you know the martyrdom today is just as prominent as any time in the history of the church we just don't see it as much uh, you know, at all hardly in the United States of America, but it's still occurring. And so this is the time that Peter writes this, and he's writing this again to the exiles or those, the strangers, you could say, that are in the dispersion there. And so you can pick it up in verse one then. he says, So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So right away, you know, again, you know, he he tells you who he is. It's, there's no nobody questions the authenticity, you know, of, of Peter's writings. They don't question his apostleship. Where the apostle Paul, remember, he always when he talks about being an apostle, he talks about being an apostle, one who is born out of time and all this. It's no question, you know, Peter is an apostle. He doesn't go into trying to explain it how he got to that place. He just says. It straight up because it's pretty much a known fact and we'll look at some things as we go along. So he's writing to an area. Remember, this isn't a people, but a, this is a general region here that he's speaking to, different regions. He says, to the pilgrims of dispersion in Pontus and Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, of the Father, and in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, you know Peter is the second most prominent person in the New Testament, second only to who? Jesus. That's right. He wrote uh, two books, First and Second Peter. Like I said, there's no question uh, to his authority here. Uh, I love what David Guzik in his commentary on First Peter he, said, he writes this. He says Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than anyone except the name of Jesus. No one speaks in the Gospels as often as Peter did. And Jesus spoke more to Peter than to any other individual. Jesus rebuked Peter more than any other disciple. Peter was the only disciple who dared to rebuke Jesus. Peter uh, confessed Jesus more boldly and accurately than any other disciple Peter denied Jesus more forcefully and publicly than any other disciple. Jesus praised Peter more than any other disciple. Jesus addressed Peter as Satan alone among the disciples. Since Peter is so prominent in the gospel records, it's worthwhile to remind ourselves of some of the important mentions of Peter, uh, the record of, of biblical history. When Jesus woke up early in the morning to pray before the sun came up, Simon Peter led the other disciples on a hunt to find Jesus and to tell him what he should do. Peter put his nets out at the discretion and the direction of Jesus to bring in a massive catch of fish. Peter went on a unique outreach trip with the other disciples. Peter stepped out on the boat during a raging storm and walked on water with Jesus, if only temporarily. Peter was the one who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter also saw Jesus transfigured in glory together with Moses and Elijah. Peter was the one who asked Jesus how many times we should forgive a brother that sins against us, quoting a higher number, uh, seven times seven. Peter was the one who asked Jesus after the encounter with the rich young ruler, what the disciples would receive for giving up everything to follow Jesus. Peter was the one who insisted that Jesus would not wash his feet, and then he commanded Jesus to wash his whole body. Can you relate to Peter at all? Yeah, that's that's why I want to share these things with you is to remind you that, you know, uh, you know, here's Peter, the most known of all the apostles in Scripture. But he has feet of clay, just like the rest of us. Says Peter heard Jesus predict that he would deny him three times? And Peter replied, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the rest of the disciples agreed. Peter was the one who cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, we know that he tried to cut off his head. He's a better fisherman than he was a swordsman. That's what we learned from that. Peter denied Jesus three times, cursing and swearing. They didn't even know Jesus, refusing to even name the name of Jesus. Peter was the one who ran with John, the disciple, to the tomb Uh, on the morning of the resurrection, after hearing the report of the women that the body of Jesus was not in its tomb, Peter was the one who received a personal visit from the resurrected Jesus on the day of the resurrection. And Peter received public restoration of Jesus in front of the other disciples after the resurrection of Jesus. So Peter, all throughout the scriptures, you know, is, is known and and has such a a unique relationship with the Lord, one that's close and yet far. You know, again, we can relate in so, so many ways. He, he speaks of them and he's writing to pilgrims. You know, we think of, when you think of pilgrims, what do you think of? Thanksgiving, right? You know, for the most part, the Mayflower, it's a boat. No, a pilgrim, you know, again, by definition, you might want to write this down. And this will help you think this through here this morning. Pilgrim, temporary residence in a foreign land temporary residents in a foreign land they're looking for a place to settle down okay so that and he's talking to believers that's you and me that we are temporary residents in a foreign land we're looking for a place to settle down and you know where that place is heaven you're never going to find some place you know some we say things oh this is heaven this is like heaven no it's not like heaven it's not even close and when you get to heaven one day you will wow you know, I wish I'd have got here sooner. You know, and, and again, the Greek word that's translated as pilgrims is, is translated a lot of different ways. You know, we we see it's it's exile or sojourner, aliens, uh, strangers, foreigners. And again, what Peter is is driving home here, and we can't miss this in our study of First Peter, is this earth is not our home. Okay, this isn't your final resting spot. This isn't this isn't where we're to to you know, hunker down and, and, and really to make a go of it. This is preparing us for a life that is to come. And because of that, you know, we're, because we're pilgrims and we're, because we're passing through, because this isn't our dwelling place, that means that, you know, we're heavenly creatures. That this is temporary. And, it, and it's so important that we're reminded of that. One day we're going to be with God. This world's not our home. And what does that mean for us that follow Christ, that we have a different value system than the world around us, different morals than other people? We have a different belief system. You know, we're called to be different, you know, as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, as friends and neighbors, the way that we relate to, to one another. And we'll see that at the end of the chapter. Uh, it's why I titled this morning's message, Choose One. And, and as we close this morning, I'm going to give you a choice. Uh, something that we need to pray about and ask God to speak to our life. You know, the cross is vertical and it's horizontal. It, it has to do with both our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man as well. And so Peter's going to show us something here that, you know, if you're in the midst of a trial, and especially for those of us, you know, walking through this pandemic, that's uh, why I chose First Peter, uh, we're, you know, there's so many things that we don't understand, so many things that we don't comprehend that are going on in the world today. But yet we can still have hope. And the Bible says that's a hope that does not disappoint. And again, you know, if you're in the midst of a trial, you know, and I can tell you this, you're either in a trial today, you're either coming out of a trial, or guess what? God's preparing you to go into a trial. This life is a lot about trials. It's a lot about testing. And we need to be reminded, you know, that because there's so much bad teaching that says, you know, well, when you come to Jesus, there's no more, no more trials or testing, you know, it's just all, you know, uh, and you go, no, it's, uh, it, it's hard. <laughs> it can, there's a lot of difficult things that you're going to go through in this life. And there's a reason. And it's not because God is against you. God's not against you. He's for you. But the book of Hebrews makes it perfectly clear that there's no son, so you could say no son or daughter, that God doesn't receive to himself, that he first doesn't what? Discipline. He disciplines. He tests us. Not so that he could find out what's in our heart, so that you and I can find out what we're made of. That's the most important thing. And most important in that, that we'd find out that we have a need for God. There is no such thing as a self-made man. There's no such thing as, you know, hey, I am going to do it on my terms. No, it's, it's, again, it's appointed unto man to die and then meet God face to face. You know, we're all going to stand before the Lord one day. The key is, are we ready? Are we prepared to meet him face to face? And so, you know, people will say, you know, that the focus of the Christian faith isn't all about going to heaven. You know, you've heard that expression. You know, they were so heavenly minded. What? They're of no earthly good, right? Well, really, it's the other way around. It will never be earthly good until we become heavenly minded and that's really what you know Peter is is driving home here and so uh, again you know making sure that you know we understand it you know Peter's telling us you know that we've and if we're going to live this Christian life and we're going to live it in a way that is pleasing to God then we need to take the bible seriously we need to take the word of god very seriously and we need to submit ourselves to God. We need to surrender to God. You know, Jesus said, you know, when you think about being a disciple, a disciple is to be a, what, a follower or a learner, right? And Jesus said, you know, because people will go, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I, I go to church. I read the Bible. You know, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if any man desires to come after me, let him, what, deny himself, That's deny himself, And pick up his cross and follow me how often do you say on Sunday or Wednesday or Tuesday and Thursday he said follow me what daily it's a submitted surrendered life it's a Christ-centered life and it's it's a great challenge for us it's a way that we have to look at our own heart and go am I truly in Christ have I truly died to myself or is it you know Jesus plus something you know equals something in my life well you go with regard to salvation it's jesus plus what nothing it's it's christ alone and so this understanding that peter has and the reason i i wanted to read those things at the beginning is that we can all understand peter was pretty flaky is that pretty safe to say he could be a lot like me he could be a lot like you okay but god saw something in him just as he sees something in me and he sees something in you But it's God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Greater is what? He who's in you than he who's in this world. Yeah. So it's really about becoming dependent upon God, not just adding God, you know, to our life. And unfortunately, many believers, it's just, well, I believe in Jesus like, you know, okay, well, he's my savior and I, I, I appreciate that. But what Jesus desires is so much more. And again, and, he's, and it's not works. I mean, his, what the point that he's driving home continually with us is what God has done for us in Christ. It's no one works their way into heaven. We work because we're on our way to heaven. There's a big difference there. You know, we're you know, By grace, we've been saved through faith and not of works which any man can boast. It is the gift of God. Okay? And, and it's one of the things that Peter is driving home. And if anybody knows that, hey, you know, if we got in on what we did... Peter's going, man, I'd be on the outside looking in, but thank God for every time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus offered him an opportunity to be restored. Where sin abounds, grace does all the more for Peter, for me, for you. And God does that. Why? Because that's part of the breaking process when we realize the goodness of God and how good and how faithful God is. He says, you know, grace and peace be multiplied to you. You know, the beauty of wherever you see grace, you see peace. They're like twin sisters. You know, they, they travel together. Look at there in verse 2. He says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. He calls us elect there. What does that mean? That means God chose you. Did you ever in school get, have, where they broke up into teams and they had a captain? And they picked teams and they went, you know, I'll take so-and-so and I'll take so-and-so. It was fun to be chosen, right? You don't want to be the last person, you know, they go. And the, where the teacher actually had to step in. This is, this is so humiliating. Where you don't even get picked. Like they're going, okay, you can have the last two picks. You can have Mike and the other person. You know, that's when you go, man, that hurts. Where the teacher goes, okay, you have to take so-and-so. Well, the teachers got smart. They put the the... Less talented players, you might say, as the captains, right? Then they got to choose the team. And you got to kind of see, you know, what it felt like on the other end of that. But we can rest assured today, God has chosen each and every one of us in Christ Jesus. You know, you weren't the, the, the last pick, so to speak, in that regard. It's like God's going, oh, well, I mean... <laughs> come on, you know, you can be on my team, you know, and and if you've been there, you know that that feeling, it doesn't, it, there's nothing special, you know, about being picked like that, but that's not God's heart. He says that we were chosen, that we were elect. It wasn't random that he did it, but it was according to his foreknowledge. I can't remember if it was Billy Sunday who said this or or D.L. Moody, so forgive me in this, but he said, you know, i I'm certain, he said, I'm thankful that God picked me you know, beforehand because I'm sure he wouldn't have chosen me afterward. Meaning that, you know, <laughs> you can figure it out. In sanctification and for obedience. See, there's a purpose in God choosing you. See, it wasn't just people go, oh, you know, I get saved and I give my heart to Jesus and I just go on and just do live my life the way that I choose. No, it's about submitting and surrendering our hearts to him. He says, the reason he chose you was in sanctification and for obedience. Sanctification is a process, right? You know, I've never heard this term used so much that is in baseball in, in recent years. They go, it's a process, it's a process, we're committed to the process, they, you know, the process, Well, that's the Christian life, it's a process, it's a process, it's, from, it's changing from glory to glory. I was teaching the Recovery 180 group on, on Friday night and I was talking about the difference between uh, recovery and transformation. See, recovery is what people want. They go, oh, I'm just trying to recover. I'm trying to get the old life back. Well, you couldn't get the old life back if you wanted the old life back. And that's true in any of our lives because the gospel is not about recovery at all. It's always about transformation. What God wants to do in my life and in your life isn't to get your old life back. People are going, oh, I just, I just want pre-COVID. No, you don't. Pre-COVID wasn't any good anyway. It was different. You go, we want better. We want transformation, amen? You know, you go, but we love familiarity. And so sometimes we'll settle for less. Verse 3 goes on, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. You might highlight that. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, understand this. God's not giving you a to-do list today. He's not saying, okay, this is what I want you to do. Go out and do this. Go out and do this. Go out and do this. What is he doing? All through scripture, before God ever instructs me and you in what to do, he reminds us of who he is. Amen? Of what he has done for us. You know, we sing you know, a worship song about it. It's, you know, not what I've done, but what he has done. It's not who I am, but who God is. Man, and we, when we get that perspective right, and so many things change for the good in our life. That, that word begotten, it's an interesting word there. You know, really what God has done is he's rescued us. And, and we were born again. We were, we've been born again into the family of God, into a living hope. Not a hope that, that comes and goes, but a hope that never fades away. See, there's a big difference there. Some people say, well, I'm kind of hoping, you know, like, like it's a dart, you know, like I hope. No, the beauty of of hope in scripture, when it, when it's a God infused hope, you know, Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance, right? Of things hoped for the evidence, evidence, meaning that it's, it's going to come to pass with the things that God declares in his word, the things that he's telling you and I, they will come to pass. So when we, we have a hope, it's a hope with an expectancy, It's a hope that, yes, this is good. And they go, are you sure about that? I am sure. We don't hope, the Bible says, for what we see, because we see it. We hope for what we we don't see. Yeah. Hope. Man, it's so powerful, so profound in our life. You know, I love that expression, you know, that a man can go, you know, six weeks without food. He can go, I don't know, they say that. I couldn't. But, I mean, six weeks without food, six days without water, you could go six minutes without oxygen, but you can't live six seconds without hope. And you know, as a pastor, I've watched that. I've sat with people you know, held their hand when they passed from this life into eternity. And I've sat with people that just gave up hope. And they gave up hope and they were dead within some minutes, some hour. It didn't even take days. They just gave up hope. Hope is so powerful, so profound because... Hope, in the gospel sense, is the reality. It does not disappoint. It will come to pass. Understand this. I go back to, you know, how we began this morning. So here's Nero, right? He's persecuting the church. He's dipping Christians in in pitch, and he's lighting them on fire. He's feeding them to the lions. He's dragging them behind chariots until they just, you know, are, are bludgeoned to death. Killing them finding all these cruel ways, you know, and and people are living some in in tremendous fear, like, you know, and Jesus said, don't worry about, you know, what man can do to the body, but rather fear him who can kill the body and the soul and cast them both into hell. And then you look at Peter's life, who we, we see the contrast and you go, what changed from Peter being a coward to having the boldness that he had? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we'll celebrate today, that he saw Jesus risen from the dead. He saw what he suffered and what he went through. And three days later, just as Jesus said, he said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And he did. And it changed his life. And it'll change my life. It'll change your life. Every time we encounter the resurrection, it's why we need to be students of God's word. It's why we need to be people of God's word, because there's so many things that, you know, the world is going to want to shove down your throat. And you think about it. I mean, just be honest, you know, with the, the information, you know, overload that's out in the world today, does it, does it, when you, when you watch, you know, the news, whatever, even whatever your favorite channel is, do you walk away from it going zippity doo dah, zippity, hey, my oh mind's what I wonder. No, you walk around and all of a sudden you start complaining, you start griping, you go, cause it's called what? Garbage in, what? Garbage out. Yeah. And we, and we just, but we continue to do it. Like, why? Do you just like having a bad day? I mean, it's self-inflicted. That's what's so funny about it when you think about it. Being born again, you know, is the greatest event that's ever happened in any of our lives. I mean, if you think about it, every good decision you've ever made in your life stems from that decision. I mean, think about it. You go, if I... Hadn't given my life to the Lord, I never would have met my wife. And if I hadn't met my wife, I wouldn't have my kids. And if I didn't have my kids, then I wouldn't have my grandkids. You know, you think about all the things, you know, and, and I wouldn't have met my mother and father-in-law, who are right there in the back. You know, and no, I mean, it's like, you know, I wouldn't know you guys. I mean, every, every good decision I've ever made in my yeah. life is tied back to my born-again experience. I got all kinds of them that the aren't. You go, but you think about it in your life. Every good decision stems from knowing Jesus. It, and, it, you know, at the moment, it might not seem that significant. I mean, some people got saved when they were really young and they go, gosh, I don't remember, you know, that. But you go, you look back over time, the longer you live and you look back and you will see, you know, I mean, it is like a crossroads in your life. The, the best decisions that you and I will ever make will come from being born again. Verse 4 goes on, it says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Aren't you glad? You know, people watch the stock market, right? And it goes up and down, up and down. Or people that invested all their money in Enron years ago. And then one day Enron was there, and the next day Enron was what? Poof! It was gone. But to store up your treasure in heaven, he says, incorruptible, undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Verse 5 goes on, it says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Why can we endure? Because we're kept by the power of God. You're not kept by your own power. I'm not kept by my own strength. We're kept by the power of God through faith. And we not only have a living hope, but we have a present power. That's the beauty of it. It's not just something that's futuristic. It's current right now. We have a present power to help us. We have the Holy Spirit who's abiding with us as we abide in him. Verse six goes on. It says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love." though now you do not see him yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory the receiving the end of your faith the salvation of your soul we have an incorruptible inheritance in heaven like i said <laughs> trials uh, it's not like you know go well uh, only certain people are marked for trials you know we think that you know god like, oh, like they look like they're you know they have no trouble no everybody's Fighting an uphill battle of some sort. We just don't know it. It's that some are more evident than others. And yet, look what Peter says. He goes, if you're, if you're suffering through a trial, he says, if what? If need be. I mean, if need be, what is that indicating to us? That there, there are times when God knows that you need a trial in your life, that I need a trial in my life you know peter writes a lot about suffering but more specifically suffering according to the will of god now that's what's so amazing here first peter 3:17 he says for it is better if the will of god to suffer for doing good than for doing evil first peter 4:19 says let those who suffer according to the will of god commit their souls to him in doing good you know what we need to understand is you know when we suffer We don't necessarily understand why, but we need to understand that there's a need. Every time that you go through a trial, every time I go through a trial, we need to be reminded that there's a need in my life for that trial. And it's directed by God himself. David, in Psalm 119, he said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. He says, but now I keep your word. So what is he saying? You know, before I was afflicted, before I got spanked by you, God, I went astray. But now I keep your word. What do trials do then? Trials, they correct us. They correct us. C.S. Lewis eloquently put it this way. He said, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. That's why. It's needful. Peter, in essence, is saying, you know, we're not going to be of any earthly good until we become heavenly minded. Various trials, hard trials. And again, tested by fire. You know, I love those infomercials that I laugh at them, really. It's not that I would ever buy the product, but I love when those infomercials come on and they want you to know how indestructible the product is, right? So they beat it, they run over it, they throw it off a cliff. Like, like you would never do any of those things with it, but what do they want you to know? That this product is strong. How many... Gosh, I'm going to date myself in this one here. How many remember the Timex commercial? It takes a what? Licking and keeps on what? Ticking, yeah. And so, you know, if you had a timex, you'd what? Here you go. <laughs> I got a timex, you know. Well, I can take a you know, you can lay down and let a car run over your arm, you know, might hurt your arm, but it's not going to hurt the watch, you know. And just stuff that they would do and the spoofs that would that would come from that. But that's why in trials in our life, uh, oftentimes. It's to prove it to ourselves that, guess what, you can, you're capable of way more than what you think. And if you, how many played sports at all growing up? Raise your hand, played sports. If you did, you, there came a moment when you hated your coach. And I remember when I met my mother and father-in-law, my mother-in-law, she had a license plate. Do you remember this, Marge? It said, if you can't play it, coach it. Do you remember that? And I always laughed at that because I grew up playing sports. My wife was a really good uh, softball player and volleyball player. And her parents coached her, her mom and dad and her her sisters uh, in softball and her brother in baseball. And uh, I just remember, you know, growing up. I mean, there's that moment where you just hate your coach, right? And think they're your parents too. And, And you go, because why? You go, because they want better for you, right? They called these things called wind sprints, right? And your coach is going, run, you know, and you're going, I'm tired. And they keep making you run, right? And you're going, I'm tired. And so, you know, you're saying things that are inappropriate about the coach when you're at the other end of the field, you know, about him. Can't imagine that my wife ever said anything like that or thought any of those things about her own parents. I just know I did about my coaches. But you think about that. God is, the Holy Spirit is like a coach, in your life, that he's always going to push you harder and further than you could ever go on your own. Because what would we do? If it was up to me and you, as soon as it started to hurt, what would we do? Quit. Quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they did prove this in the gym. There used to be a sign in the gym, you know, no pain, no gain. Right. And all of a sudden now they got some guy who comes along and writes a whole book about that. And he goes, those guys were stupid. He goes, no, if it hurts, stop. <laughs> So there is a truth in that. But but God will always push us further than what we want to go. And we have to understand, you know, Father knows best. Amen? Amen? And so he says, if need be. You know, there's a song by Laura Story, you know, Blessings. And it says, we pray for blessings. I'll just read you part of it. We pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? It's a beautiful song because it's such a great reminder. It's true. You know, God is working in and through all these things. Verse 7, you know, what is God doing? He's showcasing, you know, our faith. By showing us what we're capable of doing. Verse 8 goes on and says. In whom having not seen you love. It says though now you do not see him. Yet believing you rejoice with him. With joy inexpressible. Full of glory. Again. Not because of anything that God has done for you. It's just because of who he is. That's why I loved in worship. Was we were just singing I love you. Just to say I love you to God. And not because he's done anything for you. You know, it, it's that deep kind of love. And if you're married or, you know, it, even if it's, you know, um, parental love, you know, whatever it might be. You know, it's one of the things I know f- f- between my wife and myself. Just to say, you know, that, hey, I love you. And and not expect anything or want anything. It's just go, I just want you to know that I love you. And, and, and we have that opportunity with our life. You know, again, not, not just going, oh, God, you know, I love you because you do all these things for me. And God does wonderful things for all of us. Amen. But he's worthy of our love just simply because of who he is. And in verse 9, he speaks of, you know, the end of our faith is what? It's the return of Jesus Christ. Think about that. You know, that, that's the, he's the prize. Paul says we run in such a way that we might win. Jesus Christ is both the reward and the rewarder of those who, who diligently seek him. And so Peter's just encouraging, you know, discouraged believers. You know, maybe you're at that place today and he's going, hang in there. Hang in there. Don't quit. Don't give up. Because guess what? One day, one day, it's going to be worth it. One day, Jesus is going to return. You're either going to go to him or he's coming to you. But there is a meeting that's going to take place. There's no avoiding it. There's no missing it. And our hope is that one day he'll say, what? Well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah, that we served him faithfully. Verse 10 says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied the grace that would come to you. So they, were, they spoke of, of Jesus' birth. They spoke of his life. They spoke of his death. They spoke of his resurrection. But they didn't get to see it. They longed to have a New Testament. This thing that we have right in front of us that we get to read. Man, the prophets. I mean, you think of Isaiah just go. man, I wish I could read the, the New Testament, you know. Verse 11, it says, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow to them. It was revealed not to themselves, but to us. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Even the angels themselves. Think about that. They're watching me and you. I mean, they, they're mesmerized, you know. They're perplexed, you know. Like God, you left them, you know, in charge to to further the gospel, you know. It's like, wow, you know. They can't figure it out, you know. And yet, you know, they study us, you know. And you might be thinking, where does it say that? Let me give you three verses: First Corinthians four nine, Ephesians three ten and eleven, First Timothy three sixteen. If you need a proof text there for that, but I love that in verse thirteen. And says, therefore. So what does he remember? Every time you see the word, therefore, everything that was said previously. So when, when Peter's reminding us of how much we're loved by God and that God has a purpose and a plan and all these things, he's going, because you know this and the, the testing and the trials of your life, they all have a purpose. He says, therefore, and this is what we need to take to heart today. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. He goes, well, what do you mean? The, the loins of your mind. It's like, get dressed. You know, it's like there they, they wore, you know, an out, outward, like a, a, a smock or something that was open and they would take a belt and they would wrap it and they would tie it together, especially if they went into battle and they had to fight so they weren't tripping over their garments. And, and here Peter is saying to me and to you, and especially I think of today, you know, in the time in which we live with the information that is out there and we're inundated every single day and the negative impact that that information has upon our life. You know, here's, here's Peter going, if you understand anything about the love of God in your life and his purpose and his plan for you, then you've got to protect your mind. And you think about it today. Some of our, uh, our biggest downfall is right here. You know, they say the difference between heaven and hell is 18 inches. It's the difference between your, your head and your heart is guarding our mind. What are the things that we're going to allow in to our mind? He says, uh, loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully on the grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? You need to get heavenly minded. You need to start thinking about heaven again. Maybe today, you know, you you start to think about it and you go, especially in light of communion. He says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. He's going, ignorance is what? Ill-informed, uninformed. He's not calling you stupid. He's just saying you didn't know. You didn't know any better because now Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will do what? It'll set you free. Yeah. He says, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct because it's written, be holy for I am holy. This is what I wanted to lead to today with regard to choose one. Choose one. You know, we need to make a determination in our hearts today. We need to eliminate the the fruitless activities of our life, the impure things that seek to do what? To dominate us. And they will. You know, what's that old expression? Give them an inch and they'll take what? A mile. And that's exactly what the enemy of your soul will do. There's a battleground. You know where that battleground is? It's right here. It's in our mind. You ever heard the expression, I'm my own worst enemy? Yeah, we defeat ourselves before we ever get going. What we need to do is refocus. We need to, in the sense what Peter is saying, get ready to meet Jesus. You know, we ever that get ready to meet your maker. Okay, and we should. That's how we should live because you have no idea. You could meet him today. Are you ready to meet your maker face to face? Like I said, you're either going to Jesus or Jesus is coming to you. And again, you know, Romans 12 you know, two puts it this way. It says, and don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, God's call in your life and mine is to be holy. What's the word holy mean? It means to be complete, lacking nothing. We talk about the immobility of God. God is completely self-contained. He needs nothing, absolutely nothing. He doesn't need anybody but he wants us. Just demonstrates his love. What we need to ask God is to give us a new appreciation for holiness. See, holiness has got a, a bad name or a bad rap, you know, in the world today. But I'll tell you, holiness is a beautiful thing when you see it. And you go, what does holiness then look like? What would we think it looks like today? It, it really looks like two things. One, it's single-minded. It's focused. Like somebody who's holy doesn't what? They don't get entangled in the things of this world, right? Because their their fixation is on heaven. They're not double-minded. You know, as James says, a double-minded person is what? Is unstable in all their ways, right? Living a holy life is living a life That is focused on heaven. That's the decisions that I'm making during the course of my day are based on heaven. I'm everything that becomes my filter in my life is looking at everything through Jesus' eyes. We talk about having a biblical worldview, looking at everything through what? The lens of scripture, that that would determine the way that we walk and the way that we talk. That, that's what Jesus meant by when he said, if you desire to come after me, then you need to pick up your cross and follow me daily, that we would live a surrendered life, a submitted life unto him, single-minded. I mean, think about that, almost like a, a, in a military, if you were part of any military branch, you know, most, most people in the military take pride in whatever, you know, branch they're in in their uniform because it's a reflection of of the one that they're following, right? That they're, they follow orders. Like we we respect, you know, uh, men and women who who serve in, in the armed forces because we see what submission is really about and, and living under authority and the discipline that it takes to do that. And we respect that. We see that as, as something that's holy. And then secondly, when you think about holy, what is it when it personifies itself, it does in Sacrifice, that's another thing that we appreciate about the military. That willingly, you know, taking an occupation, just like in armed forces or the police officers of, you know, in the country today, that go to work, you know, not knowing if they're gonna come home that night. Jesus said, no greater love is any man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. Holiness is that person, when you you have it all together, that you're not, you know, it's not all about you. It's not being self-centered. It's really true holiness is when we become others-centered. Because that's exactly what we see, you know, in Jesus. And then verse 17 through 21, we'll wrap it up with this. And it says, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So he's going, okay, how you should live your life, the rest of your life, you know, this side of heaven, live in fear of God. That's healthy. Fear, reverent fear of God, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. He's saying what? Don't lose sight of God. And that's what I want to encourage you with today. Don't lose sight of God. God is not a man who can be fooled. You can't pull a fast one on him. You can't manipulate him by the things that you say, by the things that you do, because man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. God sees right through it. And so he says, you know, don't be aimless in your life. There was a cost and there was a high price that was paid in saving you and saving me. And so, what do we do? He says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, in verse 22, the Spirit in sincere love for the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruption, incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you and so he says you know since sense so he's ta- he's believing that so we're believing that today about one another since you have purified your soul then do two things if you purified your soul this is the the part we god sanctifies us but we also sanctify ourselves the word sanctify just means set apart and when you determine that that you're going to live a pure and a holy life you live holy. That you make a decision today. You go. I'm gonna. I'm gonna live holy. And as we prepare for communion, I'll invite the the worship team to come out. And uh, I just want you to think about this because as we receive communion today, when I said choose one, well, the Holy Spirit's gonna quicken one of one of two things into your heart today. You're you're either here and in the sanctifying work of God as He's going. You know, Mike, you need to renew your commitment to holiness, to living a holy, pure life where I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing all the other things will be added unto me, or the other, like I said, the cross is both vertical, that would be the vertical side, or the horizontal that you go, you know, and I'm doing pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm really pressing into the things of God, but my difficulty is is loving fervently. Because I don't mean loving who you want to love. I mean loving fervently. Jesus said, love your enemies. Love those you know who persecute you, who use you and spitefully use you, right? And so as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to think about those two things today. In living in light of, of heaven, living with that hope of heaven, Is There's a work that that the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through our lives. His word endures forever. You know, the the word of God, you know, doesn't change. It's not, he's not a respecter of persons. There's no partiality with God. And maybe you just go, man, Mike, really both of those things are as as deep. And you go, well, sometimes that's really about what it is to come to Christ. You know, the Bible says if a person's in Christ, they're a new creation where old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new that maybe you'd start that journey, you know, of faith with God where you're no longer on the throne, but he is. Because I'll tell you, you know, we all know it that have been there. It's not a satisfying life apart from God. There is no true satisfaction. It's very fleeting. It's like trying to, as Ecclesiastes says, it's, you know, it's like trying to grab the wind. It's elusive, but determine today you go, God, I, I need to, to live holy before you and I'm rededicating myself to a pure life. I'm gonna eliminate this and this and this, and he's, the Holy Spirit's already quickened those things you. Or you're going, hey, I'm doing pretty good in that area of my life, but where I'm not doing really good is I don't have fervent love. Fervent, you think about fervent, that impassioned, that, that's hot, hot, that kind of love, the same kind of love that drove Jesus to the cross, the same kind of love that we celebrate today. And so you pray as I will, and the Holy Spirit will do that work in our hearts. And so as we start to sing, I'll invite you to, to come and, and to receive the communion element, take it back to your seat, then we'll, we'll break bread and we'll drink the cup together.
1: I would rather be. There's no place I would rather be.
0: No place that we would rather be. Amen. And it's a safe place. And it's a good place. And it's a guaranteed place. Not because of who I am. Not because of what I've done. But because who Jesus is. And what Jesus has done for us. Amen. With joy, you know, we can receive communion today. You know, hopefully, like I said, you've taken a moment. And as Paul would say, to examine yourself. And where you're at within your own faith. And, you know, is it more dedication to the holiness of god to holy living you know which sometimes can be in competition with then fervent love because sometimes when we think we're being holy is we reject people the very people that god has come to this earth to live and to die for and so my hope and prayer is we receive communion today that you're allowing the Lord to bring that correction in your own heart and life as to what change needs to be placed and take place. And don't be conformed to this world. You know, as I read you from verse 13, first Peter, it says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that has been brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To think your salvation and mine, it's not just a, a past event and a present event. It's actually a future event, too. One day Jesus is coming. There's going to be a, a sound of a trumpet and the heavens are going to be rent and we're going to be rescued. Amen? And all because of what? The fact that Jesus Christ came, lived, died, and rose again for us. And so let's take the bread together. And we'll take the cup. And Father, we thank you Lord, for your word, we thank you for this time in communion to be reminded afresh that Lord, you loved us so much that you came from heaven to die on a cross to set us free and that maybe the greatest reminder today, especially in these days in which we live is the reminder that we're not alone that you're with us and you're not just alongside us, but as we just received communion and we took the bread we drank of the cup that you're with us and that you're in us every step of the way. May that comfort, may that hope fill every heart today as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, we'll have you stand to your feet. We'll send you out with song as you go. If you need prayer for anything, we'd love to pray with you. But uh, you are dismissed. Love on each other as you go. Be blessed today.